I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast public service announcement. You're about to hear an episode in the middle of a multi-part show arc. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, we suggest you skip back to part one of this topic in the feed and listen in order. All right, Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. Let's turn our attention to the Masons in the fledgling United States. We already talked about how the influence of Masons in early America was important and suspect enough to drive the creation of an entire political party. See our discussion of the anti-Masons in our historical political conspiracies topic in the almighty RSS feed. And we know that many founding fathers were Masons. In fact, Dickey's book relates in detail the impressive and overwhelmingly Masonic procession that preceded the laying of the cornerstone of the Capitol building in 1793. In our interview, he expanded on the importance of the craft in early American ceremonies like these. Now, at this point in the early American Republic, Freemasonry enjoys enormous prestige. Freemasons are like the impresarios of public celebrations up and down America. Freemason lodges are very, very popular. George Washington had used Freemasonry as a sort of ceremonial special team, if you like, for the laying of stones and the inaugurations and so on and so forth. Because Masonry, like the United States, was sort of religious but non-denominational. And so it made a perfect kind of ecumenical ceremonial language. You know, when early America wanted to talk to posterity, they did so through the good offices of the Freemasons. Here we are laying a stone, laying a foundation stone for something for future generations and so on. The book elaborates on how Washington, a nebulously religious man, seemed to believe that through its very ecumenicalism, Freemasonry could bind a fledgling democracy via the promotion of non-sectarian virtue. Freemasonry opened its doors to men of all faiths. It embraced only that religion in which all men agree, in the usefully vague formulation set out by the constitutions. Washington's own religious beliefs put him at Freemasonry's spiritual center of gravity. He has been described as a lukewarm Episcopalian who never went to communion and generally invoked providence and destiny rather than God. He was less concerned about personal piety than he was about religion's role as a guarantor of public morality. The fledgling United States also needed something else that Freemasonry could supply. Virtue. Republicanism, the ideology to which Washington and the other founders subscribed, had a history full of stern lessons. Everywhere from ancient Athens and Rome to Renaissance Italy and Oliver Cromwell's British Commonwealth, the attempt to set up a system of government without monarchy had collapsed. 
The only hope for a modern republic like the United States was that the population, and in particular the governing class, could learn enough virtue to resist the slide into tyranny. Since its inception, Freemasonry had presented itself to the world as a builder of virtuous men. Now, with the importance of the craft to the early republic established, it's time for us to turn our attention to another book we came upon during our research, which has other interesting things to say about the early leaders of the USA and the importance of Freemasonry. If you can't hear the glee in his voice, rest assured, it's cuckoo time. This book, Founding Fathers Secret Societies by Robert Hieronymus, Ph.D., starts out rather cautiously on the subject. It acknowledges that while such key founding fathers as Washington, Franklin, Jefferson, and Adams were suspected of being part of either the Rosicrucians or the Illuminati, the only evidence comes from the organizations themselves, whatever that means, or other, quote, unverifiable sources. Okay, good. An acknowledgement that there aren't good sources for these rumors, but that they're worth mentioning. We're on board. And the author is admirably focused on the ways in which the civilization of Native Americans likely impacted and influenced the evolution of the ideas that came to underpin American democracy. He also points out that, unlike African Americans, Native Americans were semi-regularly admitted into American masonry. But of course, then he's got to make it weird. For example, he tells a story of a native chief being initiated into the craft, after which that chief offers to initiate the Englishman who has conducted the ceremony into his own tribe as a medicine man. The original account quoted indicates that the Masonic and native ceremonies are remarkably similar to each other as they both involve three levels of initiation, for example. Hieronymus clearly wants us to think that this means there was a very early and unknown link between Native American society and the Freemasons, but that argument doesn't pass the smell test. So both groups have rituals that involve three stages. What can we conclude from that? Many human activities involve repetition with variations, especially in groups of three. Remember the horror comedy Rule of Threes? Use of three repetitions or variations in rhetoric and other forms of speech are well-established and effective techniques. And the story dates back to the late 1860s, by which time masonry and native traditions had encountered and been influenced by each other for better than a hundred years. But the author has his own explanations, which we'll make Dana read here. Theories abound as to how the American Indians may have been introduced to rites and rituals similar to Freemasonry. Some say that Freemasonry ultimately originated in an Atlantean culture that spread both to the West and to the East at its destruction. Mmm, Atlantis theories. Delicious. Alternatively, the Native Americans may have inherited these secret rites from one of the many pre-Columbian settlers of America. Sure, except there was no such thing as Freemasonry that could be exported from Britain until 1723 at the earliest, so pre-1492 transmission seems unlikely. Another theory has American Indians descending from the Lost Tribes of Israel, pointing to the similarities between both groups' ideas for Holy of Holy Sanctum, a succession of high priests, rituals of purification and anointing, and particular habilement inherited from the fathers of remote antiquity. But how many non-Native American, non-Jewish ritual traditions include some or all of those traits? No answer. How about the fact that Natives don't speak any semblance of Hebrew or didn't worship Yahweh or Jehovah? For fuck's sake. But here's the pure, uncut shit. After studying inscriptions and numerous coins and artifacts, Dr. Barry Fell concluded that America's visitations started by at least 325 to 250 BCE with the Carthaginians and Phoenicians. They were followed by Libyan Greeks in 264 to 241 BCE and Roman traders from 100 BCE to 400 CE. Jews settled in Kentucky and Tennessee by 69 CE, 
with the second wave of refugees arriving in 132 CE. Frank Joseph, author of The Lost Treasure of King Juba, lays a compelling case for the settlement of Africans from Mauritania from around the same time. Robert Schock, writer of Voyages of the Pyramid Builders, show how primeval sailors traveled from the eastern continents, primarily Southeast Asia, and spread the idea of pyramids across the earth, involving the human species in a far greater degree of contact and exchange that experts had previously thought possible. Yet another theory suggests that the Native Americans obtained their Masonic knowledge from a renegade Mormon lodge in Idaho that lost its dispensation in 1842-1843. Hold up there. Those were a whole bunch of claims, but there was one of them that was far more plausible than the rest. Who can tell me what it is? Raise your hands. Okay, hold your horses, Miss Holman. Mr. Burnett, I see you back there, but give someone else a chance. Next time, Mr. Brokaw. Okay, let's let teacher's pet Dana Unicorn take this one. I think the most plausible one is that last thing about the Mormons, since, you know, they actually existed and interacted with real non-made-up versions of Native Americans in the decades before the 1860s. Great answer. The whole class gets cookies. After all of this bullshit, he states as fact the fringe theory that the Templars directly evolved into the Masons. Worse, he quotes David Barton as a source. Barton is a pseudo-historian with no relevant training or credentials, and a hack shill for the Christian right whose career is devoted to pretending the U.S. founding fathers intended for the nation to be avowedly Christian a notion that runs counter to all of the historical evidence. But our favorite, favorite, favorite thing is that the book goes on to produce evidence in the form of an astrological analysis of the life of George goddamn Washington. This analysis was, we are assured, prepared by none other than Maggie Herskowitz, C-A-N-C-G-R, helpfully spelled out as Certified Astrologer, National Council for Geocosmic Research. So she's totally qualified in an imaginary discipline by a certifying organization made up of people who have less of a body of knowledge than a set of shared delusions. Rad. We want to quote the whole thing, but that would bore everyone except me, so here's a tasty morsel about how Washington's character was guided by the stars. These abilities were tempered and structured by his lunar placement in the sign of Capricorn, the sign of structured hierarchical form, which gave Washington organizational stability. The ability to take abstract ideas and structure them into a philosophical system of life is shown by the moon in the ninth house, the house of higher mind and philosophy. With Taurus as an ascendant, the president's demeanor would have been slow, thorough, and patient. Presumably, though, not patient enough to put up with this twaddle. Moving on from this very important and well-researched tome, let's turn our attention to the Mormons we briefly touched on moments ago. We already covered the anti-Masonic party and the murder of William Morgan. See our historical political conspiracy series for detailed discussion. But John Dickey clued us into another all-American group that interacted in some interesting ways with the Masons. And I believe the ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America. I am a Mormon. From the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yes, the Masons had quite a series of run-ins with the most American of all sects of Christianity. And of course, because Joseph Smith's church was developing around the same time that anti-Masonry swept through the young nation, Dickey explains how these stories fit together. The tangled, and I have to say rather comic story that links together the history of the Freemasons and the history of the Mormon church really begins in Upper New York State in 1825 with the disappearance 
of a Freemason called William Morgan. In Upper New York State, which was swept by waves of religious fervor and so on, I think the most likely explanation is that some Freemasons took the oaths of Freemasonry very literally. When you join the Freemasons, you swear to protect certain secrets, and they are deeply banal secrets, on pain of being tortured to death, effectively, a pain of a horrible death. This rather ne'er-do-well drunken Freemason called William Morgan threatened to expose the secrets of Freemasonry and disappeared. And I think the most likely explanation is that he was disappeared by other Freemasons who had taken what is actually a kind of symbolic theatre. These threats are never meant to be carried out in Masonic ritual. They're just a symbolic game, if you like. I'd taken them literally. Now, the Morgan disappearance led to a wave of anti-Masonic hatred across America. Freemasonry was thrown into crisis. An anti-Masonic party was formed. An anti-Masonic candidate stood for president. And Freemason membership plummeted. The reputation of Freemason was catastrophically damaged and would take a whole generation to recover. Now, at precisely that moment, Joseph Smith claims to have discovered these golden tablets on which the angel Moroni, and you know, so I won't go through the whole story. Now, a lot of the material for that fable that he invented, I don't take his story seriously for a minute, with apologies to Mormons out there, but I'm afraid I don't. A lot of the material derives from the kind of folklore and what was happening in upper New York State. At the time, for example, there are a lot of buried remains of ancient Native American civilizations that kept surfacing. Stories were told of these ancient peoples in America who'd fought great battles and so on and so forth. And also among the ingredients of Smith's myth-making, the buried tablets and holy tablets and so on, were elements of Masonic ritual as well. And in the Book of Mormon, as he transcribed it from these golden tablets with the magical spectacles that he found that allowed him to translate them out of Hebrew, the Book of Mormon is a sort of Bible, an Old Testament, if you like, a, a new Old Testament talking about one of the tribes of the people of Israel who supposedly came to America and had this whole Old Testament-style succession of battles and things in Upper New York State, effectively. And the Book of Mormon contains lots of stories that have very clear echoes of the anti-Masonic mood. For example, there's the, they call the Gadianton Band. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Some of the episodes revolved around this Gadianton band who are basically Freemasons. You know, they wear aprons and they have secret oaths and signs and stuff like that. And they're among the baddies. In other words, in founding his religion, Smith is plundering Freemasonry for his enemies, if you like, in that climate of anti-Masonry at the time. Dickie's book goes on to note, It hardly needs exceptional scholarly acumen to work out where the idea came from. And it came to pass that the Gadianton robbers did have their signs, yea, their secret signs and their secret words, and this, that they might distinguish a brother who had entered into the covenant, that whatsoever wickedness his brother should do, he should not be injured by his brother, 
nor by those who did belong to his band, who had taken this covenant. The Gadiantan robbers fill the judgment seats, having usurped the power and authority of the land. They also have a lambskin about their loins, an obvious echo of the white lambskin aprons worn by masons. So the Mormons end up with a theology in which the masons are the bad guys. Hmm, sounds a lot like the Catholic Church, no? Well, it would if it stopped there, but it turns out that Smith's nods toward anti-Masonry weren't the extent of his thoughts on the subject. He, in fact, ended up promoting the Masons among his followers. The imprimatur of the prophet meant that by the 1840s, there were more Mormon than non-Mormon Masons in Illinois, for example. And as Smith's followers embraced the craft, he embedded Masonic ritual deep in the heart of his group's spiritual practice. He re-elaborated Masonic ritual into a Mormon version known as the Temple Ceremony a highly sacred blessing that was soon open to women as well as men. The walls of Latter-day Saint temples would display Masonic symbols, such as the square and compass and the all-seeing eye. Those undergoing the Mormon temple ceremony were presented with new undergarments, with the signs of the square and compass stitched over the left and right breast. The temple ritual contained these and other elements familiar for Masonic degree rituals, a secret handshake known as a grip, which involved pressing the thumb to the space between the knuckles of the index and middle fingers, the donning of aprons, oaths of secrecy reinforced by the threat of bloody punishment, which was illustrated by gestures, for example, the hand drawn across the throat to mimic slitting. It has been suggested that one reason Smith introduced these oaths was to force Mormons to guard the secret of polygamy, since celestial marriage, which was often polygamous, formed part of the temple ceremony too. As his religion begins to spread and he begins this strange epic trek around, you know, being chased out of different parts of the country, he starts to actually look again at Freemason. And Mormons start to join Masonic lodges and they start, more importantly, to start pinching elements of Masonic ritual for their own rituals. One of the most important ceremonies in Mormon religion, the temple ceremony, is closely based on Masonic rituals. And even to this day, when Mormons go through this ritual, they don a sort of pair of sacred pyjamas, you could call them, undergarments, which have on them the Masonic symbols of the square and compass. Dickey is hardly alone in noting the close connection between the temple ritual and Masonic initiations. As quoted in H. Paul Jeffers' book, Mormon and historian Reed C. Durham Jr. insisted back in the 70s, There is absolutely no question in my mind that the Mormon ceremony which came to be known as the endowment, introduced by Joseph Smith to Mormon Masons initially, just a little over a month after he became a Mason, had an immediate inspiration from Masonry. Though, apparently this view did get him in hot water at the time with church authorities. Now, it hasn't escaped the Mormons that a lot of what they do is very closely related to the Freemasons. But what they say is, no, we're the originals. The Freemasons copied their rituals from us because our rituals go back, right back to ancient Israel and the building of the temple and Solomon. So we're the real genealogy of the rituals. And the Freemasons have just copied them. So we're the real article, if you like. The temple ceremony is still today very much as Joseph Smith designed it, despite the fact that in 1990, the terrible Masonic punishments, throat cutting and the rest, were quietly dropped. Most Orthodox Mormons are as unperturbed as was their prophet by the similarities between their religion and Freemasonry. Smith presented his temple ceremony as a faithful restoration of the rituals practiced by the Israelites, from Solomon all the way back to Adam, 
By contrast, Masonic degree ceremonies, he explained, were only a later degenerate version of those original Israelite rituals. If anything, therefore, it was the Masons who copied the Mormons, and not the other way round. So it's a really curious, complicated story of essentially different thefts of ritual ideas and story ideas from both Freemasonry and anti-Freemasonry. And remember, of course, both Freemasonry and anti-Freemasonry themselves have stolen ritual ideas and so on from the sort of flotsam and jetsam of religion and history and thought and literature and so on over the centuries. There's one more almost unbelievable aspect to this story before we move on. Remember Henry Morgan, the blabbermouth who disappeared after threatening to publish the secrets of the Freemasons? The one whose disappearance and likely death launched the anti-Masonic fervor in the U.S.? Well, one of the kind of many really strange paradoxes of this story is that Joseph Smith, among his many wives, was the widow of that Freemason, William Morgan, who had disappeared back in 1825 for betraying the secrets of Freemasonry. Super strange, but also true. On a tour of Hawksmoor, they passed the ancient field. Heard Hilda Craig's church beating all the Beatles. From Blake's grave to the works of Wren. With Bentley and Sir Bentley and Masonic tour of sin. His grand work, it won't be top. It's too far along. Just a few more stops left until John While we're still in America, we should probably touch on one of the biggest ways that our nation's particular form of schizophrenia led to a uniquely bisected version of Freemasonry, one white, one black. And there are two elements vital to both stories. One, the expanded, mystical, uniquely French version of Masonry that is confusingly called the Scottish Rite. And second, the beautiful South Carolina city that also served as the perfervid pro-slavery heart of the Confederate rebellion. Freemasonry is an absolutely sprawling subject. It's so international, so many different manifestations and forms, you couldn't hope to cover it in 20 encyclopedias. So my book is a selective one, and I choose particular moments in time to bring to life important aspects of Masonic history. And one of those places and times is the city of Charleston, South Carolina, in the middle of the 19th century, the sort of antebellum Civil War reconstruction period. And the reason why Charleston leaps out and brings different stories into focus, first is that it's a very important place in the history of what's called the Scottish Rite. As the book explains, a French count named Comte Alexandre François Auguste de Grastilly was the first to bring the Scottish Rite to Carolina in the 1780s as part of his globe-trotting effort to unify the wide variety of exotic degrees we discussed earlier into a simple 33-degree system. The most important of his Supreme Councils, designed to keep the regional lodges in line, was housed in Charleston. Freemasonry has undergone a kind of historical process of ritual inflation. It's constantly been inventing new codes, new symbolic rituals, new systems, so ladders of different rituals that you keep going through to acquire ever higher status within the organization. The most complex and richest of those ladders, if you like, is the Scottish Rite, which really has its first world headquarters in Charleston, South Carolina, where it benefits from a sort of 
international traffic in Masonic ideas connecting the Caribbean, the Americas and Europe, Charleston becomes, if you like, the first place where you get somebody trying to say, okay, we're going to govern the Scottish Rite. We're going to be the authority for the Scottish Rite because it's getting chaotic with all its rituals and so on. And in the middle of the 19th century, that work of governing and systematizing the Scottish Rite is headquartered in Charleston. Of course, we're still talking about Caucasian-only Freemasonry at this point, so the next figure we'll need to discuss in terms of South Kakalaki is the lily-white Albert Pike, an outsized figure in the evolution and codification of the practice in the U.S. Pike was initiated by another Albert, this one Mackie, and apparently his initiation was a rather torrid affair. Dickey has the two Alberts breezing through the first 32 degrees in one night. Once he got that pesky 33rd degree... Pike joined the Supreme Council in Charleston and went about providing new rituals, backstory, and rules for all 33 of the degrees he had earned. His goal? Quote, The Scottish Rite was to become nothing less than a summation of the wisdom underlying all human cultures. Albert Pike, this larger-than-life lawyer, newspaper man, self-taught intellectual, who dives into world knowledge, world literature, writes this 800-page, absolutely unreadable summary of world philosophy, which reduces it all to a series of home truths, like, you know, sort of look before you leap. That's not one of them, but there was a series of very banal propositions, which is the philosophy that you learn in Scottish Rite rituals. And he designs all kinds of exuberant new rituals with extraordinary costumes and so on and so forth, all of those gauntlets and swords and caverns and coffins and you, you name it. And at the same time, Albert Pike would later transfer the capital of the Scottish Rite to Washington, D.C., where it is today. But at the same time, Albert Pike was an important figure in the main currents of history that would lead to the Civil War. How dull is this book? Dickey's own book provides us with this quote. The important manifestations of occultism coincide with the period of the fall of the Templars. Since Jean de Mont or Chopinel flourished during the best years of his life at the court of Philippe le Bel, the Romain de la Rose is the epic of old France. It is a profound book, under the form of levity, a revelation as learned as that of Apuleius, of the mysteries of occultism. The Rose of Flamel, that of Jean de Meung, and that of Dante grew on the same stem. In his log cabin, Pike filled an anaesthetizing 861 pages in this way. But unfortunately, there was much more to Albert Pike than Freemason autodidact and author of 800-page insomnia cures in print. As Dickey's book notes, quote, Albert Pike's gift as a mason were that he was a voracious reader and an exuberant inventor of rituals. His main flaw was that he was a racist, and his racism profoundly shaped his fraternalism. There's more, but Dana understandably doesn't want to have to quote it, so we're going to excerpt the audiobook here. In 1859, Pike wrote that the Negro, in his best condition, is still in his appetites and instincts a wild beast, ready to relapse into all his original barbarism. His sexual appetite especially is only controlled by fear and even the dread and certainty of the most fearful and awful punishment will not restrain it. To which we say, hey, Albert Pike, we know you're long dead, but please feel free to still go and fuck yourself. He was a Confederate general, he was a white supremacist, and he clearly, in the aftermath of the Civil War, 
pursued a white supremacist agenda. It's sometimes alleged that he was heavily involved in the Ku Klux Klan. I see no evidence of that whatsoever. But he nonetheless was a white supremacist who certainly conjured with the idea of a sort of white supremacist brotherhood modelled on the Freemasons. So Pike was an important Masonic figure and also a big racist piece of shit. But weirdly, there appear to have been exemptions to his racism. As we noted earlier, Native Americans, unlike blacks, were indeed allowed to become Masons in early America, with a sort of vogue in the 1840s and 1850s among some tribes for joining the craft. And Pike, far from opposing the inclusion of Native Americans, actually lobbied to help his indigenous Creek and Choctaw Nation's Masonic brothers to win compensation for the theft of their land by the U.S. government. Okay, so like, one point in his column, but he's still a real piece of shit. Oh, agreed. Just an interesting non-piece of shit exception to that rule, which we thought was worth noting. Another is the fact that until the post-George Floyd protests brought this monument down, Albert Pike was the only Confederate general who had a statue in Washington, D.C., but it was due to his Masonic work, not his inept military career. But there's a totally different story centered in Charleston, that of the Prince Hall branch of African-American Freemasonry, named after its founder and created in 1775 in Boston. At the same time, Charleston becomes a very important theatre for a very different tradition, the Prince Hall tradition, which dates back to not long after the American War of Independence. Prince Hall Freemasonry, named after its founder, is an African-American tradition of Freemasonry, formed, to cut a long story short, because racist white Freemasons wouldn't allow black Freemasons to become members, even in comparatively liberal Massachusetts at the time where Prince Hall Freemasonry first emerged. And that tradition of Prince Hall Freemasonry, still alive and well today, just as Albert Pike's Scottish right was drawn into the politics of white supremacy in the Civil War era, Prince Hall Freemasonry has played a very, very important role at different moments of the African-American struggle in American history. So what does this have to do with Charleston? Well, it turns out that Prince Hall Freemasonry made the jump from Massachusetts to the South via the legendary first all-black regiment in the Union Army. The 54th Massachusetts, which the elder among you might recall was the subject of the movie Glory, that detailed their legendary, unbelievably heroic deeds in the bloody assault on Fort Wagner in Charleston in 1863. In the Civil War, the 54th Massachusetts, which was the first regiment of black freemen, founded in Massachusetts, recruited chiefly in Boston, but also from lots of surrounding states after the Emancipation Proclamation to fight for the end of slavery. And it was outside Charleston and Charleston Harbor that the legendary assault on Fort Wagner, led by the 54th Massachusetts, really put an end to the myth that African-Americans couldn't fight. And that regiment was recruited by Prince Hall Freemasons. A lot of the non-commissioned officers were Prince Hall Freemasons. There's a wonderful story about a sort of improvised Masonic meeting being held among the survivors of the battle in the aftermath of the assault on Fort Wagner. But the role of Prince Hall Freemasonry hardly ended with that battle. 
Later in the war, when Charleston was fully abandoned by the Confederates, once again the 54th and its Prince Hall leadership played a major role upon arriving first in the city, and that role continued into the post-war period. A detachment of the 54th Massachusetts was the first Union regiment into Charleston at the end of the Civil War when it was abandoned by Confederate forces. Sorry, in the years afterwards during Reconstruction, Prince Hall Freemasons saw their brotherhood as a way of educating former slaves into the ways of democracy and full civil rights. Now, you might well be wondering why exactly African Americans were shut out of U.S. masonry in the first place. Sure, there were plenty of vicious racists like Albert Pike who wanted to keep blacks out of lodges. But masonry is ostensibly built on the idea of brotherhood among men of very different stations in life, no prejudice based on religious sect, etc., etc. So how is it that black men in America were the exception? Well, that goes back to the other Albert we mentioned earlier, Dr. Albert Mackey, another major player in Scottish Rite masonry in Charleston. The whole question of including African Americans in masonry seems to have vexed Mackey a great deal, and he attempted to come up with a Solomonic decree that would comfort the racists and their policy of anti-black ostracism without appearing to impact the values of masonry. His tortured logic went kind of like this. There were no African Americans in mainline masonry in the U.S. Because racists like Albert Pike kept them out. True, but Mackey wasn't so concerned about that trifling detail. His point was they weren't in a mainstream lodge. They were all in Prince Hall lodges. And the thing is, Prince Hall Lodges were never actually constituted properly according to the rules of masonry as interpreted by Mackey. Okay, so then they could decide to do the decent thing and formally constitute those Prince Hall Lodges as should have transpired in the first place. Well, you would think so, but there's a problem. Prince Hall Lodges were exclusively African American. Right, because those were the people who were prevented from joining any of the other lodges. Again, that's not Mackey's concern. His concern is that a set of lodges established for only one racial group went against the craft's universalist principles. Wait, are you fucking kidding me? Blacks are kept out of lodges, so they make their own lodges. But those lodges weren't probably established, again, because of white racists. But they can't go ahead and establish them because the lodges are, by necessity, black only, again, because of white racism. And therefore, they go against the principle that any man is welcome to apply to become a mason because that principle wasn't enforced to help these black masons in the first place. What in the actual living fuck? Yeah, that's the long and short of it. Mackey had identified a way to use Masonic law and tradition to diffuse the issue among his white brethren, and he was going to stick to it come what may. He and thousands of less overtly racist white masons convinced themselves that because their fraternity was open in principle to everyone, Whatever their race, they could blithely ignore the fact that no sane black man would dare cross the threshold because it was brothers with views like Albert Pikes who created the climate inside. Oh, and also Mackey later noted that freed slaves couldn't become Masons because the original covenants allowed only freeborn men to be considered. QED. What a titanic fucking asshole. Yeah, it's some real bullshit. Fortunately, though, as usual, African Americans went about making something great out of the version of masonry they themselves created, in spite of the indifference or active interference of white lodges. The founder of Prince Hall Masonry and its namesake fought for the country that presumed to enslave his brethren in the Revolutionary War. After the colonists' victory, he worked tirelessly first to eliminate slavery from his native Massachusetts, and then to lobby for the safe return of three freedmen who were kidnapped from Boston Harbor and shipped to the West Indies to be enslaved. Fortunately, much like the story Dr. Spence told us about the Russian Revolution, the tale of those kidnapped men had an ironic, Masonic, Twilight Zone twist ending. One of them happened to be a Freemason from Prince Hall's Lodge. 
When he was offered in sale to a slave merchant who was also a mason, he made his affiliation known, and the merchant ensured that the three captives were returned to Boston. A great public celebration led by Prince Hall and his brothers greeted them on their return. Masonry and racism is such a weird and awful story. Sure is, and we didn't even have time to go into the deep and fascinating multivalenced story of masonry in India when it was a British colony. Again, you really owe it to yourself to check out Professor Dickey's book. But in spite of everything, Prince Hall Masons managed to stay at the forefront of the struggles of their people. Dickey notes that Brown v. Board of Education, the decision that desegregated public schools in the U.S., was funded in part by Prince Hall donations and argued by Thurgood Marshall, pioneering civil rights lawyer, future Supreme Court justice, and 33rd degree Prince Hall Mason. Rosa Parks was in the Order of the Eastern Star, and martyred Mississippi hero Medgar Evers was also a member of a Prince Hall Lodge. Unfortunately, the schism between white and Prince Hall masonry continues to this day, as demonstrated in the documentary Terra Masonica. It would have to wait until 1990 for the Grand Lodge of Washington to partly put an end to this situation. Partly because even today, the Grand Lodges of the nine southern states perpetuate the separation between their lodges and the Prince Hall Lodges. What makes it so difficult? What, what, is the, what is the bridge burner that keeps us separate? Because there is a bridge that's getting burned. Um, but yet, I think it's the, it's, it's the acceptance of change. Um, when you grew up in a certain generation in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you're stuck in a certain mindset to where the younger generation are, wants to accept that, but the older generation is keeping them from accepting it. If you're truly practicing Freemason as you say you are, those bar barriers need to come down. It's happening up north already, and it's a beautiful thing. When I get an opportunity to travel up north and fellowship with my Caucasian brothers, my Puerto Rican brothers, my brothers of colors. It's a beautiful thing. But naturally, reality sets back into place when we come back home here in the South. 